from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today we have two great OSU student interviewers and two great guests. Shelley Wong talks to poet Sharon Olds, and Ben Keith talks to writer Corey Doctorow. Enjoy. I'm Ben Keith. Joining us today is Corey Doctorow, author of Homeland, a book about young adults challenging government surveillance and corruption in the digital age. Homeland is the sequel to your book, Little Brother. For context, can you tell us about Little Brother? Little Brother is a novel about uh, teenagers who, after a terrorist attack on San Francisco, find that their hometown has turned into an airport checkpoint on steroids, where the Bill of Rights need not apply because the Department of Homeland Security is going to shake down every person who walks down the street. And if they don't like the look of you, you get whisked away because don't you know that there's an emergency on And what they realize is that the only way that they're going to get the freedoms that they think that they deserve as Americans back in their hometown is to kick the DHS out. So they build their own network of hacked Xboxes that they cryptographically secure using uh, uh, an off-the-shelf mesh wireless protocol. uh, And they call it the Xnet. And by using this, they're able to communicate without the NSA eavesdropping on them. And they organize a guerrilla army that kicks the DHS out of San Francisco and brings the Bill of Rights back to America. In the second book, the characters are a couple of years older. And the crisis they're facing is a much slower kind of crisis, where all of a sudden it seems like everybody you know is out of work and no one has any money and people are getting kicked out of their houses. And any kind of protest is met with a hyper-militarized, aggressive response that suggests that the police are so bedwettingly afraid of any kind of dissent that it can't be tolerated even for an instant. And against that backdrop, Marcus, the hero of the first novel, finds himself in possession of a giant trove of government and corporate leaks detailing all kinds of misdeeds. He has to balance his uh, desire to uh, leak these and, and to make them public in a way that doesn't compromise him with his duties as the webmaster and digital strategist for a new kind of political candidate, someone who's running for office without party affiliation, and without major donors, who is trying to get elected just on the strength of uh, his integrity and honesty so that he will only be accountable to the voters who vote for him and not to moneyed interests. And so it, it's, a, it's a story of a balancing act, and it's not just a balancing act between his day job and his secret identity, but also the balancing act between his activist instinct and the danger that they put other people in when they follow him into battle. Is Homeland describing the present, or is it telling a tale of some dystopian future? It's not really either. It's more like a ship in a bottle. Um, People sometimes characterize science fiction as a predictive literature, but I think that's rubbish. Uh, Science fiction is a terrible record as a predictive literature. The only way you can characterize science fiction as being in any way predictive is is if you do the uh, intellectual equivalent of firing a shotgun at the side of a barn and then drawing a target around wherever the pellets hit. Science fiction has made so many predictions that some of them were bound to come true, but most of them never did. On the other hand, science fiction has an excellent track record for predicting the present, that is, for telling people things that they didn't know about the world that they were living in and the way that technology was affecting it. Uh, I think what science fiction does as being a kind of literary version of what the doctor does, when you show up at her office with a sore throat, she touches the back of your throat with a swab, and then she rubs that swab on a Petri dish, which is a kind of artificial, constrained world. And over the course of a weekend, that artificial, constrained world becomes a kind of thought experiment where the one totalizing force in it is whatever was growing in the back of your throat. 
And by consulting that artificial environment, the doctor can tell you stuff about what's going on in your much more complicated body. A science fiction writer can pluck out a single idea, a single technological fact about the world as it is, and construct a world as it could never be, uh, a world where that one fact is the totalizing force of the, of the universe, where everything is organized around drones, or everything is organized around cyber war, or everything is organized around clean energy. And by doing so, she doesn't make a prediction. Instead, what she does is she helps us see what's going on in the world around us, the same way the doctor does. And I think that's what Homeland is. It's, it's not set in any specific point in the future. It's a kind of contrafactual near future where some of the stuff is real and some of the stuff isn't, but the stuff that isn't is at least plausible. Um, and by not pinning it down to any time and place, I try to signify to the reader, signal to the reader, that what I'm doing here is a thought experiment. It's not a prediction. What was the inspiration for Homeland, the swab in the back of the throat moment? Well, there's a whole ton of it. I mean, Homeland, obviously, its major inspiration was Little Brother. Uh, you know, having, having written Little Brother and, and having had four years or so go by, I found myself kind of missing it. I, I had never written a sequel before. For me, a great part of the uh, excitement of writing is discovering what I'm going to write. Uh, it's never, you know, the final battle is the first casualty of any, of any war. And I, a novel rarely resembles the thing that I think I'm going to set out to write. And so I, I always thought, you know, who wants to revisit that old ground? But the more I thought about a sequel to Little Brother, the more I realized that it would be really fun to revisit these people and their adventures. And writing the sequel turned out to be like discovering that, you know, your old best friends from high school are still all hanging around with each other against all the odds and still getting into all kinds of great trouble, and they're happy to have you along for the adventure. So that was really my, my major uh, impetus to do this. In, in terms of kind of where the, the two books come from, though, or what they come out of, part of it comes out of a frustration with the techno-thriller genre. Like everybody else, I get dragged to the movies in the summer to see basically endless variations on um, Mission Impossible. And all of these movies, whether they're Bond movies or Mission Impossible or, or some no-name off-brand version of it, they all revolve around computers, but not computers as you or I have ever seen them. They, they revolve around uh, ridiculous fantasy computers that are so unlike the computers that we use that they seem to indicate a kind of fear and contempt on the part of filmmakers for information technology. I mean, after all, what else would explain a computer where all the type is in capital letters where it rolls across the screen one line at a time while making this horrible noise. Um, you know, if I had that computer, I would throw it out the window. And I love computers. I've, I've used computers all my life. And, you know, when I, I started when I was six when my dad was bringing home terminals connected to a mainframe at the university. And I, um, I feel like they are genuinely exciting in and of themselves. They don't need to be tarted up with Hollywood ridiculousness. It's like, making a film adaptation of Moby Dick, but deciding it would be more interesting if whales could fly and had laser beams that came out of their eyes. Um, and so I decided that I would write a techno-thriller where the technology worked, where the technology was, if not real, at least realistic. And that constraint, you know, make the technology realistic, uh, I think produced a techno-thriller that has really resonated with people. Incidentally, my friend Bruce Sterling, he defines a techno-thriller as a science fiction novel that the president appears in. What is your writing process like? Do you have a set word count that you strive for each every day? I always work to a daily word count. 
Um, and you know, when, when we're talking about novel projects, it's usually structured around deadlines. So I divide the number of days I have before the deadline by the number of words I think the book is going to be, and I write that many words every day. In the case of Homeland, I wrote a great deal of it while I was touring in Germany with the German editions of For the Win and Little Brother. And we do, you know, anywhere between four and five school visits every day. And my German translator would speak for half an hour, not speak for half an hour. And while my German translator was speaking in German, I just, I had nothing to do except sit on stage. So I'd get my laptop out and write the book. And inevitably, a kid would put her hand up and say, you know, Herr Doctor, Professor Doctor, what is it you're doing on the stage? And I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm writing the sequel to Little Brother. And they'd say, oh, it's so cool. Uh, and it was. It was fun to do that in public. It was a, a bit of show-offery, but it was also good discipline. You know, I, I, um, I, at one point, I could only write when I was inspired. And I think that's a, a, a poisonous thing that writers fall into, to, to, to wait for inspiration to strike. I mean, I know some good writers who do it, but I don't know any happy writers who do it. Writing is the thing that keeps you sane and makes you whole, then having to wait until something totally outside of your control occurs in order to do it is going to make you miserable and partial. And so I, um, I kind of learned how to write because I had to write and learned how to write when it was time to write. And to do that, uh, you have to at first acknowledge that you don't know while you're writing the words whether they're any good. The way you feel about the words that you're writing well or that you're writing badly has no nexus with the quality of the words themselves. It, it just reflects your internal state. It has more to do with your blood sugar than your writing. Uh, and once you get past that and you, you teach yourself how to write on good days and bad days, you find after the fact you can't tell the difference between the so-called good writing and the so-called bad writing, that, that it's just writing and that um, some of it goes and some of it stays, but it doesn't have any nexus with... Uh, uh, how you are feeling when you write it. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. This has been Writer's Talk, a production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. I'm Shelley Wong, a creative writing graduate student at Ohio State, and I'm pleased to welcome Sharon Olds to Writer's Talk. Sharon Olds was born in San Francisco and is a professor of English at New York University. Her publications include Satan Says, The Dead and the Living, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award, The Father, The Unswept Room, and, most recently, Stag Sleep, a stunning collection about the months before and after the dissolution of her 30-year-old marriage. Welcome, Sharon Olds, to Writer's Talk. I want to uh, congratulate you on the book publication for Stag Sleep and the T.S. Eliot Prize, um, which is the largest poetry prize um, in Britain and one of the largest in the world. It's remarkable to see that the press that the book has generated. What has the last six months been like for you? Well, it's been very exciting ever since the book came out. And I feel that I've been very fortunate with interest being shown to my work mm-hmm. over the years. My kind of poetry uh, will inspire dislike as well as like. So I've had a healthy variety of responses, <laughs> but I've, I feel I've been very fortunate all along. And then the attention that Stag's Leap has gotten is just much more than, uh, than most of my books have gotten. So it's been very exciting, very moving, very encouraging. And then when I went over to England, I got to 
meet a bunch of poets who are the other nine finalists for this prize, and and I've been wanting to meet them for a long time. So there was a nice um, social, uh, you know, hanging out um, positive dimension to the being able to be one of the finalists. Oh, wonderful. I've been... Uh Noticing how there's been a remarkable amount of press, not only within uh, the poetry world, but also within the greater media world. Um, you had a piece in Vogue magazine. Uh, you wrote a piece for Oprah magazine. So I was interested in um, speaking, hearing from you in terms of how that experience has been as well. As we all know, poetry is not read very much. Right. We're used to feeling... Sometimes, I mean, I kind of have two feelings, Shelley. One is that poetry could be seen as just being near the center of everything. Because mm. when you look at the writing programs that, for instance, the university where I work, New York University, the writing programs have outreach programs to hospitals and schools. Once you're trying to get the ability to write poems or to take the time to work on them to people, you find that poems are extremely useful things, human things, either for expressing ourselves or for reading what someone else has said and feeling a companionship with that. So I don't mean to say that poetry is not, is ignored, because of course, September 11th, 2001 in New York City, we started, I mean, everyone started sending poems mm. to each other. And love poems uh, at other times, wedding poems, poems of mourning. And so poetry is like, I see it almost as being central to some of our most important emotions. But then in, our, in the world of popular culture, not known so much. I mean, music, uh, there, you know, the poetry of hip-hop is extremely popular, and it's with the music. So just the spoken word without the melodies and stuff is not that popular. So when um, Vogue magazine wanted to do a piece on my book and Oprah, uh, uh, Oprah magazine wanted me to work on something for them, I... It was very exciting, mm -hmm. the idea of being able to um, connect potentially with people who aren't themselves poets. And we want poetry to be useful to everybody. And uh, so those larger media or different media contexts, was, that was thrilling to me. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm interested in uh, getting a sense of your early beginnings as a poet. Uh, so you grew up in Berkeley, California, and attended Stanford University, and earned your PhD at Columbia in New York. Um, so I'm interested in what brought you to poetry. I think the beauty of the music I heard as a child uh, and my interest in language, I just was always interested in words, talking and conversation and trying 
you know, our, our wish to communicate with each other about ordinary things that are very, very, very important to us, like love and sex and death and, and mourning and all, you know, and celebration, all kinds of things, to love language. I also like to dance a lot, so when I was a child, dancing and music were as important to me as language, probably. So just some some way in which rhythm uh, appeals to me very much, and rhyme appeals to me, and trying to make something pleasing, but not too pleasing, but not too displeasing, uh, out of experience both negative and positive. And I just think I was just kind of started doing that at a young age. I'm interested in this idea. You bring up this idea of pleasure, of pleasing, but not being too pleasing. Um, Is that something that um, you're considering the reader's experience of the poem, or is it more about uh, your articulation? I think when I'm actually writing, I'm not thinking about a reader. I'm so busy with being with the experience, uh, that I'm writing about, or the thought, or the feeling that I'm writing about, that I think it would be—I think it wouldn't work if I was at that time thinking who might read this and what they might think. I think that poetry writing is a profoundly social act, and that our hope is that someday someone might find some use or pleasure in what we're writing. But I just think we can't think about it at the time because we're too busy with just all the words in the language. Are they are ready to be used by us? And it's just a it's a highly engaging act to be writing a poem. And self consciousness wouldn't be good. At the same time, while I'm writing, when I'm uh, I said to you about not wanting to to be trying to be too uh, pleasing. I guess there's certain kinds of excessive use of adjectives uh, to want to communicate the beauty of something, but the more adjectives I use, the less I'm communicating the beauty of something because it's just getting drowned in words. Mm. So that's partly what I mean by not being too pleasing. Also, you don't want to be trying to flatter the subject of your poem if there is a subject. Often poems don't exactly have a subject. Um, and likewise, if you're, I believe that if we're wanting to attack someone, we can't write a good poem. If we're writing in defense of someone, then we might be attacking that person's enemy, right? Mm. But I have a sort of fantasy that words don't want to be used to tell lies or to attack people. That therefore, when we try to if we want to write something really mean, I don't think the poem's going to work. I don't mean that we always have to be sweet, but I just think we need a balance, truthful balance. Not any large truth, but just our own truth. Just a balance. In terms of your latest collection, I was interested in not knowing the particulars, but I think it's interesting that uh, the book is about uh, your divorce, which happened in 1997. I also read that you had told your children that you would not publish anything about the divorce for 10 years. Yeah. So, so I was interested. Like a merciful kind of 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tell your kids. Absolutely. Uh, I was curious to know when you started writing the book, uh, how did it begin? It began as it begins, and it went on as it goes on. Most of the poems in the book were written in the first year or two, and then maybe a year or two after that. And the last poem was written the most recently, so I wasn't someone who waited until my feelings abated to write. I've always been someone who writes right away what's of most concern to them. And what was the revision process like? Was that happening simultaneously with writing the first drafts, or did that come with more time towards the end? Right, right. Well, when I'm writing a first draft, I'm actually writing slowly enough that if I put down a word that I know isn't right, I cross it out and wait for a better one. So a look of a page of in my notebook with a first draft of a poem, it has a lot, uh, well, it has, some have some crossing out, crossings out, and some have a lot of them. So I don't just pour everything out and then revise it. I try to write the poem the first time as it will appear in a book. Uh, that almost never happens, because once I, I write in longhand, an aligned uh, grocery store notebook. And once I type the poem up, then I can see it a little more objectively. And so then I make some revisions. What I used to say was that uh, when I revise, I try to take out half the adjectives from the first draft and a third of the self-pity, <laughs> as if uh, I leave in enough to hold the poem together. Uh, you know, then I rewrite on it by hand, and then I retype it, and uh, so that I, with each poem, I have a pile stapled together of like ten, the ten processes of revision. Uh, in case I actually was doing better a few revisions ago, right? Sometimes we write the life out of our poems, and if a poem doesn't come to any interesting ending, then I don't even type it up. So these 50 or so poems in this book represent God knows how many first drafts I wrote. But if it has enough, if I like it enough and seems to hold together and it seems truthful to my thought and feeling and it comes to some kind of ending, then I'll type that up. So in terms of how you know whether a poem is working. I'm interested if you feel like it's not working, is it a matter of approaching that same moment with a different lens or a different emotion? I don't think I'm in control of what my feelings are. And I think it's rarely occurred to me when I've finished a poem. I don't make my decision immediately whether it's ever going to get typed up or not. Um, and I have written many poems over my lifetime so far about the same experiences. And that's fine with me, because I think one that I write now will be different, maybe, from one I wrote 20 years ago. But you never know. But I, I believe in trying. So I'm not afraid that I have a limited number of subjects. And I'm happy to write a poem every day about the same subject, if that would come to me to do that as a poem, if a 
shape, certain shapely poem feeling would come to me um, with the same subject. Also, as we get older, we see different things in our past. And so I might write a poem about the same hour of my life once every five years, and it will be a very different poem, partly because of the images in it and partly because of how my understanding of myself and my life and the other people in it has changed and also the vocabulary that feels real available to me, um, depending partly probably on what I'm reading. Like if I'm reading a field guide to um, non-flowering plants, which I happen to be reading now, then it's very likely that a lichen or a fungus will get into my poem. You're well known for your unflinching gaze when it comes to poetry and talking about um, sexuality, uh, the difficult aspects of life, um, not shying away from the body mm-hmm. in all of its uh, mm-hmm. bareness. And I'm interested in your beginnings as a poet and how you were able to write so openly. And if you have advice for poets who are younger and struggling to let go of fear or inhibitions in their work? I find many essential subjects really interesting. To me, sexuality is just a completely interesting subject. Who isn't interested in that? Not easy to make a poem that works. So many pitfalls of sentimentality or crudeness or this or that. So easy to put one's foot wrong, but totally worth the the try. Uh, Same with poems about people we don't know who are in situations, maybe in our neighborhood, maybe across the world, that we're very concerned about, what are usually called political poems, Mm. poems about people we don't know. Um, I write so, so, so many of those, and most of them don't work. Mm. It's just too hard for me to do with the right amount of respect and freedom at the same time. Mostly my tone is off, but I keep trying because I'm very moved to write them and because writing a poem about human nature is valuable to me, even if no one else ever sees it. Uh, I think that's one thing art is for, is to inform us about our nature as a species, and we're a killer of a species. We're just deadly to the earth, and at the same time, there are many beautiful things about our species, and certainly certain certain moments in sexuality would be part of that. Or in parting, like if someone old is dying, then just because it's really, really hard and really unlikely that it will work doesn't stop me from trying, because no one's ever going to see what I'm writing. I'm completely alone when I'm writing. And no one will ever even know I've written it. And then I think probably also I'm a bit of a sociopath. (laughs) I think that there's something in me that doesn't have a normal amount of loyalty to one's ancestry. Um, I think that my loyalty is more to other people who were children when I was a child 
And so my loyalty, as I've come to think of it, I was telling someone about that the other day, my loyalty, I think, is horizontal. It's to my age group mm. and anyone I identify with around the world, rather than to my traditions, which proved not entirely salubrious. I'm curious, um, in terms of what's next for you, do you have an idea of what um, your next collection will will focus on? Well, um, I've been writing a lot of odes, mm. and I've been writing, uh, I, I have a couple of kind of new subjects, I don't know how new they are, um, I have a bunch of sister poems that I really like, but that's going to take a while to to work on. I don't write poems with an idea to how they will make a book. Mm-hmm. I don't write books. Mm-hmm. I just don't write books. I write poems, each one for the hour of its birth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you, Sharon Olds, for joining us on Writer's Talk. Well, Shelley, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for calling me. Oh, you're welcome. I look forward to meeting you at the reading. Sharon will be reading at the Columbus College of Art and Design on Thursday, February 28th at 6.30 p.m. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shelley. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The book again is Stag's Leap. For Writer's Talk, I'm Shelley Wong. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. For more from Writer's Talk, visit www.writerstalk.org. This is Doug Dangler. Till next time, keep writing.